Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the psalm that we have just sung, Psalm 87. Uh, I mentioned this morning that we would look at this psalm, which is in many ways closely related uh, to the psalm that we looked at this morning, Psalm 48. Uh, It, too, is ascribed to the sons of Korah. Uh, It, too, speaks about uh, Jerusalem. It, too, is among these group of psalms known as the Songs of Zion. And it is a wonderful psalm uh, that speaks to us about the church. And uh, it may not appear that way immediately, but I hope that's what we'll see fully and clearly here uh, together. As uh, we've turned there, let us uh, turn to our God, first of all, in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that is ours uh, to come together at the close of this Lord's Day, uh, to meet with you, to worship you, even as we know that our minds are already drifting towards the busy weeks, uh, days of the week, and tasks that we have to come. We pray that you would be present with us, that you would open our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear that we might receive uh, more and more and more of the blessings that you would give to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, some of you perhaps will know the author uh, Joan Didion, who some years ago wrote uh, a beautiful, uh, poignant book after the sudden deaths in quick succession of her husband and then her adult daughter. And as you might imagine, it's a very, uh, a very moving book. In one passage there, she describes how she kept her late husband's shoes after he had died. Uh, she knew that he was gone, but she said uh, uh, when he returns, of course, he'll need something to wear on his feet. Uh, In her grief, she was just plunged into confusion. And uh, she calls that very hard and troubled experience, uh, it's also the title of the book, The Year of Magical Thinking, uh, a book about hard and difficult times. And uh, that image of not being able to give up his shoes is a very haunting image, a very moving image. And I think any one of us who has known hard and troubled times can't help but be touched by that kind of image. Uh, Psalm 87 is a psalm that comes to us amidst hard and troubled times in the scriptures. Very difficult times. It's found in that section of the Psalter uh, that records some of the worst times for the people of God in the Old Covenant. But it is a psalm that is put there purposefully in the midst of hard and difficult times to give hope and promise to God's people. To say to us, as it said to that people of old, that your difficulty, your affliction won't last forever. There is hope that we can celebrate, that we can sing about, that we can look forward to, that is sure, that is not magical thinking that we can be confident in even in the worst of times. Uh, This is a little excited psalm. It's been called by more than one commentator staccato in its expression. It just sort of uh, punches out its notes, as it were, its sentences almost breathlessly. 
Uh, we don't quite capture it in our English translations because the translators uh, have smoothed it out for us. They think to make it a little more comprehensible to us. But we can see that if we look even just at the very first verse. Uh, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. Uh, You see how it just sort of plunges in midstream. We read that and and we're sort of forced to take a step back and say, uh, well, what mountain? What city? Who is the he? And of course, uh, I'm sure we're all well-versed enough in the scriptures to know that that mountain is Mount Zion. The city is Jerusalem. The he is God. But you notice how the poetry just sort of rushes in excitedly. It sends up a burst, a flare of a cheerful, joyful future that God promises his people. But the times were very hard for Israel, exceedingly hard. Uh, Psalm 79, which is part of the context here for this psalm, begins with the words, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Verse 5. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Uh, God had visited judgment on the people. They lost the right to remain in the land a condition of the arrangement made with them at Mount Sinai. And that judgment was the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and the loss of that land. These were hard and troubled times. In Psalm 74, we read from verse 3, Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. And at verse 7, they set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. Uh, The psalmist there writes even as if he has personally witnessed uh, the terror of that destruction. He says in verse 4, your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. And so we're tempted to think that all of the images of Zion, all of the images that we saw this morning in Psalm 48, of the safety of Zion, the success of Zion, the stability and strength of Zion, its security, we're tempted to think that they are lost, that they have vanished. And all of these Uh, Questions lead us to those very haunting, agonized questions we find in Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9, uh, where the people of God in very hard and troubled times cry out to the Lord, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And if you reflect on these questions, even for a moment, 
Uh, I think you're forced to, to consider how these are questions so piercing, so searing, that most of us are probably too pious to admit that we would even ask them, let alone think them. But there are those moments in life for us. And surely if you had been in Jerusalem to see the temple torn down, the walls torn down, the city laid to waste, the population carried away in exile, you too would be tempted to say, where is God? Has he forgotten? Has he in anger turned against me forever? But Psalm 87, this little excited psalm, looks away from that crisis. It's given to us amidst that crisis to encourage in its depiction of Zion. Uh, It's a psalm that is not merely about that ancient city, that ancient people of God in ancient Zion, that old Jerusalem long ago. Uh, we have to be reminded today that Zion still applies to us today as a spiritual reality. Because the New Testament teaches us how to read the Old Testament. And the New Testament teaches us, Hebrews 12, that in our worship, even right now, we come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And Revelation 21 tells us that our great hope, our great anticipation of the consummation of the work in Jesus, of Jesus Christ in the world is that holy city Jerusalem that shall one day come down from heaven from God having the glory of God. There are one people of God. Mount Zion is still our home. Jerusalem is still our home. And we experience that reality in part now, but also not yet. Not yet in all of its fullness, not yet in all of its completeness, not yet in all of its glory. And so every individual Christian and the church as a whole still faces hard and troubled times as we await Christ's return in glory. Uh, We still look forward in times of great difficulty, and so too in the history of the church has the church uh, sang in that same agony Psalms 74 and 77 and 79, crying out to God in times when the church seems to have collapsed, in times when the church seems to have been abandoned. Uh, Sometimes we've experienced that rather personally, haven't we? We meditate on those very agonizing questions of Psalm 77. Has God forgotten me? It's the kind of question we can think about at the death of an infant. Or the loss of a husband or a wife. Times of great difficulty, hard times in this life. So how do the people of God find comfort in that crisis, that crisis that is felt very individually, uh, that crisis that is felt corporately by the people of God, that crisis that characterizes, in some sense, the valley of the shadow of death that all of us walk through as God's people, as pilgrims, as exiles, 
who still await our homecoming? Well, in the scriptures, part of the answer is always, this is not the last word. Uh, Jerusalem here is in ruins, but this psalm looks forward. This psalm looks forward with remarkable confidence to the day when God will act again for Zion, to deliver her, to restore her, to make her a blessing to the nations. Uh, The promise is sure, the song here is joyful. And we can be sure of Zion's future, first of all, from Psalm 87, because we are told that Zion is God's mountain and his favorite. Zion is God's mountain and his favorite. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Zion is the holy mountain of God, and it is God's favorite, because God established it, we're told. And uh, I hope that some of you are scratching your heads and thinking to yourself, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that the Jebusites founded Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was already a city, an extant city, when God gave it to David in 2 Samuel 5. In what sense, then, did God found Jerusalem? Well, God founded that city through David to be a holy city. He founded it to be David's city. He founded it to be a city of shalom, of everlasting peace a fortress, a bastion of his rule in the world, with the temple at the center of that city on that mountain. He established Zion as the place where his people would gather three times a year in holy pilgrimage to meet together as the people of God, to worship God, to remember his saving acts, to rejoice in him. It would be in that city on that mountain that God loved, that God loved, that was precious to him. Oh, this mountain imagery, of course, fills the Psalter. It stands behind uh, Martin Luther's well-known hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on Psalm 46. And uh, we read in a passage like Psalm 76, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling in Zion. For there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. Uh, Zion is where God sits enthroned. It is his palace of peace. His abode has been established there, we're told. It's the place that he loves. The place where our covenant Lord and sovereign King has made his presence known in grace and in mercy. And of this mountain, our psalm here praises its gates. Psalm 87, verse 2, gates through which people enter the holy courts of the Lord. Uh, to commune with him, gates which are welcome signs on the horizon for the weary pilgrim coming to worship, Uh, gates which are places of authority and judgment. 
So I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, Psalm 122 says. Uh, One of these great pilgrimage psalms, also one of the songs of Zion. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, where thrones for judgment are set, thrones of the house of David. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, we're told. The Lord prefers this city to all of the impressive sights of the world to all of the dwellings of Jacob, to all of the shrines and pillars in Bethel and Dan and all of the other sanctuary sites where Israel had worshipped God before this place, Zion, was designated the place where God would meet with them. Uh, The Psalms can and do rightly celebrate the beauty, the elevation, the glory of Zion. Zion is indeed God's mountain and his favorite. Uh, But we mustn't forget at all that Zion is a completely unimpressive place in itself. From the world's perspective, it cannot hold a candle to the Acropolis in Athens or to the seven hills of Rome or to any number of ancient sites and cities and mountains. This hill, this mount, this glorious Zion, as we thought about this morning, is in fact only barely a bump in the road. And as one writer has said, it's the kind of mountain, in fact, that only a father could love. You see, Zion is only celebrated because God chose it to be the fulcrum between heaven and earth. And so it points wonderfully for us to God's electing purpose. As we're told elsewhere in the Psalms. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. You see, it is just the right city on just the right little hill for a God who comes to the lowly and exalts them. He's the one who has exalted Zion. It's not exalted itself. Glorious things are said of it because he loved it, because he chose it, because he focused his attention on it and made his promises to it that it will never be abandoned that it will never be lost. You see, the real glory of Zion is God's work there to gather his people, to redeem his people, and even when he has been angry with them, to restore his people. Uh, Think of the words of Psalm 85. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. That is what God has promised to do in Zion for his people amidst hard and difficult and troubled times. God promises hope for the future. Zion is God's mountain and his favorite. Also, secondly, we see in this psalm that Zion is the mother of God's family. 
That's the second great analogy that is given to us. Zion is the mother of God's family. Uh, What is so wonderful in the Psalter is that for all of the attention that it places on the earthly Zion, the earthly Jerusalem, the earthly temple in the Old Covenant, is that there is also a vision that reaches out and beyond that says that God's purpose, as strongly loving as it is there in Jerusalem, is not limited there, but in fact it has the whole world in view. Uh, God has always promised and purposed that through his Zion, he would gather the elect from the whole world. Uh, We read that in Psalm 82, verse 8, where the people of God pray, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Uh, God was never content with Israel alone. That was step one. You see, God's plan always reached beyond that land. Uh, Psalm 86, verse 9, is a verse that is is sort of like uh, the opening scene, maybe the trailer to the great film that is Psalm 87. Uh, Declares there, all nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. All the nations. All the nations. Uh, I won't ask anyone to stand, being too Presbyterian for that. Um, But I wonder whether there are any of us here who are Jewish Christians. Perhaps most of us, perhaps even all of us are not. Those who are not are here only because we have been gathered from the nations. And yet, you see, that was always God's purpose, always God's promise. To Abraham, he had promised, in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Oh, that is part of what is being celebrated here in this psalm. As this psalm moves from Zion as God's mountain and his favorite to Zion as the mother of God's family. Uh, Psalm 87 verses 4 through 6 give us a record of names. A census that is taken in Zion. It's not the only place in the scriptures in which there is this sort of record, this census. It's not the first place. But what is so interesting about this census, this record of names, what is so peculiar about this list is that people from Cush and Philistia and Tyre and Babylon are included on it. Uh, Verse 4, I mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre along with Cush, this one was born there, they say. Think about that. Uh, Rahab is code for Egypt. Egypt, the great enemy of God's people to the south. Babylon is the great enemy of God's people to the north. Philistia is the great enemy of God's people to the west. Tyre is the enemy near. Cush is Ethiopia, the enemy that is far. Born in Zion. Uh, Three times that's repeated in this psalm. It becomes a chorus here. Born in Zion. Born in Zion. Born in Zion. 
Now, physically, those born in Egypt or in Babylon can no more be registered as having been born in Zion than I can be registered as having been born in Samoa or Romania. Uh, Record offices don't work that way. If you've ever applied for a visa or a passport or stood in line at customs going through another country in the airport, uh, you know this painfully well. But this psalm raises our eyes to the church as that people of God of whom this is true. And here the enemy nations, Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, they're not just adopted into God's family. They're reckoned as native-born. Native-born. In theology, we talk quite a bit about the doctrine of adoption, the importance of that doctrine, the truth of that doctrine, the wonders of that doctrine. Uh, But this psalm goes beyond adoption to say that when Egyptians believe, when Babylonians believe, when Philistines believe, When crazy Americans believe, when the English believe, when Scots believe, when Koreans believe, when any one of us believes, we're not just adopted. We don't just have settled immigration status. We're not just tolerated foreigners who have no access to public funds, but we are natural born. We belong just as much as any one of Abraham's physical descendants to God's family to possess every right and privilege that belongs to every member of God's family. What a beautiful statement that is, loved ones. One that echoes throughout all of the scriptures. Uh, I think, for example, of Isaiah 19 almost uh, too good to be true, really. A a really incredible passage there and a favorite where amidst curses that God pronounces through his prophet Isaiah on all of these evil empires that would terrorize and finally overwhelm and destroy God's people, God also blesses them with a very language that he has used to describe his love for Israel. His love for Zion. How is Egypt now called my son? How is Assyria called my child whom I have redeemed from bondage and brought up out of slavery? Uh, These are words that could only shock and astonish those who first heard and read them. And uh, we find a similar sort of image of this given to us in Isaiah chapter 60, where the prophet Isaiah declares to the people there, uh, lift up your eyes, Israelites. Uh, go, go and see. Go to the harbor, climb to the tallest building, and get a good look at all of the foreign ships coming in. Now, ordinarily, that's not exactly a happy sight. Uh, Warships of foreign nations, enemy nations, preparing to dock is not exactly good news. But we're told there that these ships, once filled with weapons of warfare, are now laden with glorious treasures intended for Zion. 
You see, God not only saves Jerusalem from her enemies, but he saves her enemies from themselves and then brings them to Jerusalem to delight in him. And uh, because you and I probably don't regularly think of Rahab and Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Cush, we might not immediately be shocked by this list. But the Israelites sang this psalm in their worship. And they would not have missed it. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, Isaiah 66, 18. They shall come and see my glory, the Lord says. And so too in the Gospels, you see, this is why we are told in places like Matthew 4 that Jesus went preaching the kingdom to the Galilee of the Gentiles. The Galilee of the Gentiles. And then he tells Nicodemus in John 3, anyone who would be born, anyone who would be a citizen of that kingdom, who would enter it, must be born from above. And so when we read these texts, and when we read Psalm 87, one verse in particular ought to be very much on our minds. That is Galatians 4.26, where Paul tells us all that Christ has done for us to liberate us from sin, where he identifies us as citizens in Christ, and then he announces there in Galatians 4.26, Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. We're not just citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, but we are born of her, we're told. She is our mother, uh, born to the citizenship of that heavenly reality, God's church, the true Zion. That is the reality that most defines us. You see, it is not hard and troubled times that most define us. It is not these years or times of magical thinking as we struggle to cope and make sense of our difficulty that most defines us. But what most essentially defines us must be that we are citizens of Jerusalem, born of her, born of Zion. Heirs of God, joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ, who's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. What most defines us must be that God puts his name on us. That we are born of his church. Well, he does that in particular for us through baptism, doesn't he? Where we're given a new name, Christian where we're identified as the people who belong to God, and then we ought to respond to him in faith. But nevertheless, he makes promises to us that you have a family in me. Well, this is one of the reasons why there must be no ethnic or racial division in the church. Because we are told that Jews and Gentiles belong. Israel and the nations, they become one people in Christ as they receive Christ, as they have faith in Christ, as they trust in Christ alone for their salvation. There is no distinction. Oh, there is no room for prejudice. 
as if the gospel stops at our borders. As if it belongs only to those who have the right background or pedigree. And if we don't see that, then we have missed something completely in our doctrine of salvation. Because not one of us deserves it more than any other. It's given freely to sinners. And this register of names here is very much like the names written in the book of life, isn't it? A list that records each and every one whose sins Christ bore finally, irrevocably, fully in his body on the cross. A great multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue in the church. And yet chosen individually. Each specific name by each specific name whom God loves. Whom Christ prayed for in the garden as he sweat great drops of blood. Whom he hung on the cross for to redeem. Psalm 87 has great confidence that Zion is God's mountain and his favorite. Zion is the mother of God's family. And thirdly, we're told that Zion is God's fountain and spring. His fountain and his spring. Verse 7, we see that. As they make music, they'll sing. Singers and dancers alike will say, All my fountains are in you. Zion is the fountain, the wellspring of new creation. Uh, In exile, the Israelites are in despair. Earthly Zion is cast down. We read, for example, Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Uh, The problem, as God pronounced to the people through his prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 2.13, is that, as he says, God's people have forsaken me, the fountain, the spring of living water. They've dug their own cisterns, their own wells, broken cisterns and broken wells that cannot hold water. Uh, Forsaking God, in other words, relying not on his living water, but on their own resources. Trusting in themselves. Forsaking the promises that God has made to them, which of course brings only, finally, separation and exile and drought. And yet Psalm 87 announces in this great hymn of praise that the redeemed of every people, tribe, and tongue sing, all my fountains, all my springs are in you. Images, again, that echo throughout the Psalter and throughout the Scriptures. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Psalm 46. There is the river of life that flows through the new heavens and the new earth with the tree of life for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22. And this song of celebration 
of our victory, of our hope, is that all of the wellsprings of life flow out of Zion for us, flow out of the church for us, flow out of our Lord Jesus Christ for us, to bring life to us. Uh, Psalm 36 declared, With you, O Lord, is the fountain of life. And Isaiah 12 declared, With joy we shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And our Lord Jesus Christ declared, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life, which shall well up to him, in him to eternal life. Uh, These are the fountains that are springing up in Zion to cure the thirst of a parched world. Uh, Waters of baptism that promise grace and life to the weak. Waters of refreshment for our souls in our Savior. And that hope, that future is in our Lord Jesus Christ because he is the suffering king who went into exile for us. And through his work for us comes the birth of many sons and daughters of Zion. And though he faced hard and difficult times every day of his life, as he suffered, as he labored to earn the righteousness that he freely gives to his people, though he was cast off and rejected, yet he rose in triumph over his enemies and redeems them. Our hope is certain. And because he triumphed over death, we know that our hope is not magical thinking. He bought the church with his own blood, and he's promised that he shall return in glory to bring that heavenly Zion down to earth where we shall dwell in blessedness with him forever. What a hope in hard times. Uh, What a promise to us. What a call to every heart that we might be able to enter into that joy, that confidence, that we might be able to stand and say, I was born in Zion. And though the church has called out to God through the ages, how long, when, why, why do we face these hard and difficult and troubled times? Nevertheless, God's promise to us in our Lord Jesus Christ remains sure. That's Psalm 84. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, whose hearts even now, are set on pilgrimage to appear before God in Zion, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. For in Zion the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and in Zion Jesus Christ gives us grace and glory. May that be true for every one of us here. Amen. Let us pray.